Hello and welcome to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. Today, my guest and I examine somebody who never contested an election as a political candidate, but was one of the most astute commentators on current affairs, literature and politics of his generation. Christopher Hitchens once said he believed he had been born in the wrong country. That country was Britain, but an unflinching belief in the promise of America saw Hitchens move across the Atlantic in 1981. It was there that he forged not just a career, but a life as an uncompromising polemicist. This led him to criticise, in astonishing prose, the regimes of Saddam Hussein and Slobodan Milosevic, Mother Teresa and Princess Diana, and, as a committed anti-theist, God, in his most famous work, God is Not Great. Hitchens isn't a thinker one can characterise easily. This is partly due to the breadth of his writing. He wrote books on the philosophy of religion, geopolitics and literature. The one thing linking all of Hitchens' writing and his utterances, he was a formidable debater, was his opposition to totalitarian thought. This sometimes stoked derision from his detractors, especially his views on Islam and his support for the war in Iraq. But for all the descriptions of him as a shallow contrarian, the authenticity of his opposition to totalitarian ideologies cannot be denied. More than anything, Hitchens is a product of the student politics that erupted in the late 1960s. By the end of his life, four decades later, Hitchens was a pariah to many leftists of his own generation and leftists of those hence. More than anything else, his works perhaps demonstrate that no generation can stay at the vanguard of leftism forever. Each generation seems condemned to have its own views pulled apart and re-examined by the next, so that no figure remains uncritiqued. There are no idols on the political left, and we can be sure that if there were, Christopher Hitchens would have been quick to turn his pen to them. My guest today is Alex J. O'Connor. Alex is the founder of the Cosmic Skeptic YouTube channel and associated blog and podcast, where he discusses issues primarily related to ethics and religion. As well as Hitchens' life and work, we discuss the future of religion in Britain and the wider Western world. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce Christopher Hitchens. Hi Alex, how are you? Hey, I'm, I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Good. We are here, Alex, today to talk about Christopher Hitchens. This this podcast is about people who are controversial. Christopher Hitchens was was no stranger to controversy at times in his career as a as a writer and an essayist and a, a journalist. He was born in Portsmouth in 1949 into quite a British middle class family. His parents had served in the Royal Navy in the Second World War. I think his upbringing was important in informing the person he became, not because he set much store by it, but largely because he ended up reacting against it. In the broadest of terms, how would you describe the family upbringing that he came from? And how does that relate to the uh, thinker that he became sort of in his teenage years and in his early 20s? I think that Christopher Hitchens' life is most characterised by his contrarianism. He liked to set himself apart from those around him. Uh, in later life, this manifests as being a sort of independent political thinker, wanting to be the person in the room 
to do the then equivalent of what we'd now call the sort of, well, actually phenomenon. Uh, and I suppose his early upbringing is, is no exception. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we, we sort of get glimpses of what his early life was like through Hitch 22. He devotes a lot of times talking about his mother, who he was clearly had a lot of affection for, and this might have something to do with the fact that she died relatively early in his life. Um, well, I say relatively early. I mean, he was sort of in his maybe his 20s or 30s or something, but I mean, you know, much earlier than many people's parents would die. And in, in quite bizarre circumstances, she appeared to have been part of a suicide pact with a man she'd eloped with uh, to Greece. Again, something that Hitchens writes about himself so he clearly was quite affectionate uh, with regards to his mother um, his father seems like a more stern figure in in the household but he he does also talk about him with quite some respect a sort of military figure like you say a quite sort of British straightforward uh, family uh, they sent him to independent school and I think it, it seems to be at school when Hitchens started to become the ideological force that he eventually grew up to be. He writes in God is Not Great about his old teacher, Gene Watts, who would take the class around the countryside and talk about how it is that we're so lucky that God has designed green to be so pleasing to our eyes. And he reports that even at the age of whatever, you know, nine, I think he says, um, he reports that he was able then and there to react against this, to say this is this is ludicrous. Of course, it's the case that our eyes have developed to enjoy green, not the other way around. Now, I, I must say I'm somewhat suspicious of the ability of a nine-year-old to be quite so clinical in rebutting this kind of implicit argument. But it certainly tells us that this is how Hitchens saw himself even as early as that, reacting against the sort of religious upbringing that he's having, a religious school, a religious culture, and beginning to sort of think, well, actually, I'm not sure about all of this, and, and thinking for himself. He, he talks about um, discovering a love of books at school and how one of his, I think his headmaster, one of the schools he went to would sort of recommend him books and, and give him books to read. And I think he saw this as a way to set himself apart, to be a little bit different, to say, I'm, I'm sort of going above and beyond the curriculum and thinking for myself and discovering these ideas and being excited by them. And that, that's certainly something that lasted to the rest of, for, for the rest of his life. I mean, it, it's, it doesn't do a, a great justice to, to Hitchens to say that a lot of his views are informed by the popular culture of the time in that he seemed to just want to sort of rub against the grain because he would be able to defend those positions well and he would want to resist the idea that he's just doing it for that for that sake but it does seem quite coincidental uh coincidental that a lot of the opinions he held were ones that did rub against the grain i, I don't know if just by sheer chance you'd get to that kind of position i have heard him saying before his parents were conservative as i said they were from a naval background and he said that he came to the point where he th realized that they weren't getting a great deal out of being the way they were um that the decline of the british empire and the sort of um hemming in of the of the united kingdom in the 50s had done them very badly especially his father because he'd been made redundant uh, from working in the navy i mean you described him as a contrarian there do you think there's a possibility that if he'd been born into a more radical liberal environment and tradition and that 
tradition was certainly present in Britain. Do you think he might have ended up being a, a conservative? It's possible. And of course, many people say that he did end up becoming a conservative, uh, principally due to his stance on the Iraq war. This is often characterised. And he'd be introduced on radio shows and talk shows as a man who was once of the left, but, you know, took a, a sharp turn to the right over right. And I, th I think he never quite liked that because I think he actually saw his um, his support for what he called the, you know, he would never quite want to use the war in Iraq. He prefers the word intervention, the Mesopotamian intervention. Uh, as as probably uh, motivated by quite left wing ideals, um, I'm not sure if it's the upbringing, if it, if it's the culture of his upbringing, or so much the sort of culture of the country. Like you say, there's a a radical left culture in the country at that time. It's one that Christopher Hitchens became a part of, especially at university. But I I I, I would say that that would have been the count, countercultural force. You know, the the sort of dominant culture of the time would not have been that. And so, had he been born into such a culture, it's possible he may have just. Um, resonated with it because as he grows up, as he goes to school, as he goes to university, this culture that he's familiar with and has been brought up in is uh, it is something that, like I say, rubs against the grain, right? And and it's difficult it's difficult to know for that reason. Um of course the the Iraq war was not very popular and so it does seem strange that when finally we get something that people want to say places Hitchens squarely on the right, it just so happens to be something that is a vastly unpopular opinion, or at least an incredibly controversial one at the time. So I don't know if it's so much to do with his family upbringing as the political climate of the country more broadly, but it's clear that there was a, there was a, there was a drive. Um, the parent, I, I think uh, Christopher's mother, he once overheard Yvonne saying, if there's going to be an upper class in this country, then Christopher's going to be in it. And that was very much their approach. I don't, I don't know if they sort of exactly liked the, the state of class relations in the UK, but they thought if this is the situation we're in, then we're going to give Hitchens the best of it. The Lees School in Cambridge and Oxford University certainly was a good fit for that. He went to Oxford uh, to study at Oxford in 1967. And to some extent, I, I do view him as a product of the 1960s. Um, we now associate that decade with the development of certain types of political attitudes, changing attitudes towards sexual relations. Um, in many ways, what we refer to now as the 68 as the 60s student movement. When I think of that movement, I think of him. And the strand that runs through his life really from then on is his opposition to totalitarianism. A lot of that, I think, came from literature, from the literature he read. Who were the authors who inspired Hitchens? Well, I think principally we have to mention George Orwell. Uh, this is a man who Hitchens would refer to perhaps more frequently than any other writer. Possibly the, the American founding fathers would be up there as well. Uh, it's, it's certainly the case. I mean, there's a, there's a, you can, there's a video of, of Hitchens giving a tour of his Washington, D.C. apartment. And he, and he points on his shelf to the, what he refers to as every word that uh, George Orwell ever wrote. And then corrects himself, say every word that George Orwell ever published. Because, of course... We can't get our hands on, on everything. I think Orwell actually used to d destroy his lecture notes. They were all handwritten, and he used to make a point of destroying them. I can't remember quite why. It might have been something to do with not wanting them to become, you know, collector's pieces. But there is at least one still remaining, which I've seen with my own eyes in a in a rare bookstore that a friend works at. Um, Hitchens had this entire collection, and he said uh, that he reads it every year. I think, if I'm re remembering rightly, he says that he sort of rereads the complete works of 
George Orwell every single year, which, again, uh, difficult to believe that you could sort of fit that in. But if there's anyone who could do it, it was probably Hitchens. So Orwell was clearly a huge influence on him. He wrote, wrote an entire book about Orwell um, and the sort of the political themes, as you say, the anti-totalitarianism the, is the thread throughout everything Hitchens did might have had something to do with the influence of, of George Orwell. Uh, but Hitchens was also quite moved by fictional works growing up. You can tell he talks about reading all kinds of books. He mentions Dostoevsky on a number of occasions, although seemingly sort of wanting to disagree with, uh, with the author, who was, of course, a devout Christian. Dostoevsky at one point said in a letter to a friend that if all of the facts lay outside of Christ, he'd rather reject the facts and stick with Christ than, than reject Christ and stick with the facts, which is, which is against everything that Hitchens ever said. But I think that Hitchens felt Dostoevsky was a good uh, made a good diagnosis of the psychological state of uh, human beings and of religious belief, I suppose, because he would agree probably with Dostoevsky that that is essentially what the believer has to do, right, or has to be willing to do at the very least. So um, you hear that come up a lot. But the the other the other really important influence, I think, are as I say, the American founding fathers. Um, he seemed to have a particular fondness for Thomas Jefferson, uh, but regularly would cite uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine. Uh, that the men who founded the country that he became so appreciative of. I think he he came to view America as much as an idea, as a as a piece of land, really. Yes, which is what the Americans do and have historically done so well, describing themselves as the American experiment, the American idea, the American dream, uh, rather than just the American nation. And this is something that Hitchens definitely bought into and there were times when there was almost a defensiveness about wanting to say that the American founding fathers were on his side which which has been a staple of American debate until I think quite recently it used to be the case that in in political debate in America people would say well didn't you know that George Washington actually thought this and they would say no he didn't George Washington actually said this and they'd argue about what the founders said nowadays it tends to be Something more like, well, I don't really care what George Washington said. He was wrong and a racist and a stupid old white man, you know. Um, but at the time, it was it was quite popular, uh, a popular tactic to, to you know, grab the founding fathers by the shirt neck and drag them onto your, onto your argumentative playing field. And Hitchens did this all the time. I mean, he was convinced that most of the founding fathers were, de- uh, where he would say, deists or deists. Um, which he used the term to just describe people who believe in God, uh, but not a, a God who intervenes in the world. And certainly thought that Benjamin Franklin was privately an atheist. That's what he thought. Um, it, it's, it's difficult to know exactly what it was about these men that, that so captured him, but it might have something to do with the fact that the American founding story, the story of the founding of America, is, in their characterization, a fight against totalitarianism, a totalitarian well, not quite totalitarian, but um, a tyrannical, I should say, a tyrannical authority. And even if, looking back historically, you don't think that, you know, British taxation or you know, the British uh, rule over America is actually the most tyrannical system in the world, if you read, you know, Common Sense by Thomas Paine, then, then you get that impression. And they write so poetically that you can sort of apply this 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 philosophy, this way of thinking to any kind of... Uh, tyrannical authority and that's why you end up getting this strange 
fusion of philosophy and politics with Hitchens, a man who, like you say, was motivated principally by anti-totalitarian thought, suddenly becomes something of a wannabe philosopher talking about the philosophy of religion. It's because he identified the kind of tyranny that people like Thomas Paine or Thomas Jefferson or George Washington were writing about, and indeed George Orwell was writing about, in the figure of uh, the god of Abrahamic religion. He later referred to himself as Anglo-American. He became a a US citizen in, I think, 2007, three or four years before his death. His endorsement, actually endorsement's probably underselling it, his, his infatuation with the American experiment, do you think it concealed a, a contempt for Britain? I'm not sure. Um, I know that in, in Mortality, uh, Hitchens hints at the idea that he's quite sad upon realising that he'll never be able to see Oxford again. And he he seemed to have an appreciation for the the sort of the British ideal, the British literature, British culture, British um, sort of way of life. And I think that if you really pressed him, although he wasn't a fan of the the sort of religious intervention in in the United Kingdom, um, I think it's difficult to say that it's a, a huge problem the religious influence over, over the politics of the UK. I mean, it's not actually that significant. It's actually, I, would, I mean, famously, people like to point out that it's more significant in the United States, despite being technically secular. So, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. I wouldn't say. I, I didn't exactly get that impression. Um, I'm not sure if he had that great of a time in his upbringing, his, his school life. Uh, at university, at one point in Hitch 22, he says something like, you know, I've tried more than once to... Uh, to pretend like I enjoyed Oxford more than I did, or something like that, uh, implying that he sort of didn't actually have that great of a time there, and he seemed to just want to get straight into journalism. And at the first opportunity, he jumped at the the ability to, to move to America. So I wouldn't be able to say, but I I think it had more to do with the pull of America than the push of Britain, for sure. I mean, he, he moved to America in 1981. He'd been a foreign correspondent in the 70s. I think fundamental to what he thought about America was that he believed it would be a better place to be a writer. I think that was quite central. Yeah, I mean, you have um, the the almost sort of verging on obsession with freedom of speech in the United States. Also, a broader audience, Um more sensational things to talk about. American politics has always been more sensational than, than British, uh, in most instances at least. And an ability to inject that poeticism, that, that sort of philosophizing of the founders into the, the modern politic. You could, you could talk about the views of the founding fathers, for example, in a way that you can't really do in Britain. You don't really have that origin story to refer to, to you know, rally the ideological troops. Um, again, not to say that he did it because it's it's easier, but because that's what he enjoyed doing. He liked that style of writing. He liked having that kind of material available to him. And so I think he just uh, felt quite at home there. As you said in your, in your opening remarks, um, he was always more or less an atheist. He was certainly never a Christian anyway, in, in at least self-identifying. When do you think the moment... Or could you identify the moment when he became an anti-theist specifically? That's to say somebody who does, who you know, actively disavows the existence of God rather than simply not accepting it as true. I think certainly a moment 
a crystallizing moment for him and many people of his generation was the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. Yes, um, although it's hard to know exactly when the the real opposition to religion began, rather than, as you say, just being an atheist, because throughout most of his works, he, he seems to write about this. I mean, um, I think it, it's possible. I, I mean, the two the two events, I think, that crystallize, as you say, his real sort of hatred for religion, and probably in particular for Islam as a, as a truly totalitarian system, are the fatwa against Salman Rushdie, because Salman Rushdie was a personal friend of Christopher Hitchens, and so I think it it must have shaken him to the core. Uh, and Hitchens also, I believe, was uh, in support of Salman Rushdie shortly afterwards, took part in a, uh, in a, in a reading of the Satanic Verses at a bookstore, after which there was discovered a, a pipe bomb that hadn't detonated in the store, which you know, Hitchens can write all he likes, and he, he writes about receiving death threats, he writes about people phoning him and, and saying that, you know, we know where your children go to school. And he's a little blasé about it. He's like, you know, we have to treat this seriously, but this is the this is the price you pay kind of thing. It's difficult to know how it actually affected him, though. I mean, that, that kind of thing, if it's not enough to sort of scare you into submission, it must at least anger you and motivate you to, to fight back and do something about it. But the two events, are, as I say, the fatwa against Salman Rushdie and also, of course, 9-11. 9-11 in many ways inspired the new atheist movement as a whole. It was uh, only sort of, you know, five years later that we start to see emerging the end of faith with Sam Harris and the God delusion and God is not great. I think that Harris and Hitchens were much more, uh, they, they sort of politicized the issue much more. I'm not sure if Dawkins was so motivated by the by the same. I think Dawkins was more motivated by just sort of creationism in schools, which was the, the hot issue at the time. You'd see people debating it all the time on mainstream news. The way that today we talk about the culture wars, we talk about wokeism, we talk about trans issues, we talk about, you know, which bathroom people can use. This is like what the sensational media is all about. At, at the time, it was about religion. It was about atheism. It was about evolution, which is kind of difficult to, 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 to imagine now almost. Um, but I think that's what motivated Dawkins. However, th- this is only what these are the events that really sort of inspired a hatred of religion. It's not necessarily what inspired a hatred of of God and, and a, a vision of God as a totalitarian monster. If I had to take a guess, I would think that that came from his university Marxism. Uh, being an atheist is quite integral to being a Marxist in many ways. And Hitchens writes about how after attending some meeting at the town hall in in Oxford, he was offered a pint by a man who just introduce him to Marxism and that he was he was sort of blown away by it and, and and really resonated with it and presumably if he was politically convinced by the sort of the the class the, the depictions of class and the uh, the political uh, history of of Marxism it's possible that when you then read Marx write quite eloquently about religion which he didn't do too much but made his views very clear that it's just something you sort of accept as part of the package. You think, okay, yeah, this is a worldview that I like. This is a worldview I accept, and and this seems to fit well within it. So I have a feeling it might have, might have started then. And Hitchens, uh, Marx, uh, you know, when I when we talked earlier about writers who influenced Christopher Hitchens, I, the fact that I didn't say Karl Marx is 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 shocking, really. I mean, that's that's another person who really deserves to have his name on the list. Um, Hitchens uh, was more specifically influenced by by Trotsky. Um, something that he never abandoned, even until the very end of his life. 
but Marx in particular, when it comes to the religious stuff, you know, he would he would often quote the um, the introduction to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, uh, the famous opium of the people, and he'd he'd quote the entire passage, and this would be something he regularly pulled out as a way to ideologically push back against the idea of a god. And so it seems to me that the Marxism probably had a lot to do with it. Can you be a Christian and a Marxist, do you think? I'm, I'm neither, so it's not something I have to think about very much. It's difficult to say. I mean, it's difficult to, 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 I guess it depends what you mean by Marxism, right? But I mean, Marx himself certainly saw criticism of religion as the beginning of criticism. You know, like that, that this was sort of, that this was integral. I mean, religion was part of the uh, this sort of mystical legitimization of people's status as you are who you are, this is what you're supposed to be, and, and, and you've got to put up and shut up. So Marx himself saw it as integral, but I think, you know, trivially, it, it's got to be possible to to be a Christian and to believe in the political ideas of Marxism. Indeed, many uh, Marxists try to claim Jesus Christ as one of their own. When you look in the Acts in, uh, of the Apostles about the way that the the early followers of Christ were living in sort of communes and sharing everything they had and, you know, uh, sometimes living quite ascetically. You know, people like to say this is actually quite a sort of Marxist ideal. Um, I think that really Marx, Marxist criticism of religion is of that, is of religion. Uh, it's, it's of religion as, a, as an organized structure that determines and enforces the way that people behave and live their lives. That's quite different, I think, from the idea of believing in a God and believing in, even believing in Jesus. I think you could be somebody who appreciates the works of Jesus, believes that he was uh, the son of God and believes that God exists and believes that he rose from the dead, but thinks that organized religion as a whole is a bit of a sham and is against the message of what Jesus was teaching. I mean, half of Jesus's time in the Gospels is spent looking at the religious authorities of the time and saying, you just don't get it. You just don't understand at all. You with your your rules and your you're so sort of strict and puritanical. You're just not getting the idea. And I think it's very easy to look at organized religion of today and to sort of say the same thing. And so you could you could agree with Marx's criticisms of um, of of religion, I suppose. Maybe you couldn't quite go as far as to refer to it as an opiate, but you might agree with the general characterization of what religion does, or just sort of do a like in in the way that Thomas Jefferson cuts out. Jesus's divinity from the Gospels and keeps what's left. You could take out the religious criticism from Marx and keep what's left. There'll be people who say you can't really do that because it's so integral. But I think it's 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 possible, you know. You mentioned the September 11th attacks, which unquestionably had an enormous impact on Chris Fitchin's life. It's probably, I think, the single biggest moment of his of his public life and his and his life as a as a writer. Jeremy Paxman asked him what he wanted to see when he when Hitchens was terminally ill with, with cancer. Um, and he said he'd like to see the World Trade Center reopened and, and Bin Laden on trial. Quite an interesting thing to say in, in, in such a in such you know difficult circumstances. It among other things led to his endorsement and support for the war in Iraq, which we have to cover with Hitchens. I think it's basically unavoidable. Um, I'm not really interested in asking you whether you think he was right or wrong but I think what I'd like to delve into is are you surprised by the fact that he 
supported the war in Iraq. You you mentioned this debate earlier as to whether it was um, commensurate and congruent with his other views or not. Um, do you think this all works itself into a kind of a, a, a proper synthesis? I I'm not sure. I'm I. It's difficult to know, of course, because uh, Hitchens died before I'd even discovered the man. I mean, I would have been 11 years old, or possibly 12 when when Hitchens died, and so I sort of discovered him all at once. Although I I must say, you know, I I, I will have discovered his religious musings before any of his political stuff. So and and so um. Yeah, there there would have been a time when I began to realise that this was a position that Christopher Hitchens uh, held, but I think I was young enough that I didn't really understand what that meant, and also I was so enamoured by him that I thought, well, if if Hitchens thought this, there must be something to it. You know, I'll 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 give it the time of day. Um, I it's surprising. (laughs) There's a sense in which if somebody surprises you so much that the only thing that can really surprise you about them is if they don't surprise you. You know. he, he, he could defend such unpopular opinions and with such force and such confidence that you'd really begin questioning yourself as to whether you were going a bit insane with his, like how, how good he was at, at doing this. That I, I think to myself, is it surprising that he took a controversial opinion about a political issue that wasn't particularly popular, that had to do with sort of deposing a, a totalitarian? I, I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, it's difficult to know. It's, it's, I, but I think, um, as I say, the, the, if you put it in those terms, it sounds like a quite a Hitchens thing to do. But even if it wasn't, you know, the fact that he's taking a, a, a hugely controversial, unpopular opinion on a political issue, I don't think it's surprising for Hitchens at all. I mean, he never really backed down from the position he took. I think he said that he regretted the fact that so many people had died, but not the original decision. He actually voted for George W. Bush in 2004. He was a, obviously an evangelical Christian, which is a, a surprising outcome, perhaps. Um, I mean, he, he lost a lot of support from people over his support for the war. Um, how badly do you think the war damaged his reputation in the long term? How, how high up the list of, of things that people know about him do you think it goes? I'm not sure it's done that much. I mean... People that the the thing that was so uh, likable about Hitchens was his his style and his persona. I'd say even you know more so than than the opinions themselves. Such that you'd you'd regularly hear you know Christians who he debated talking about how wonderful he is, talking about how much they enjoyed spending time with him and how 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 great of a person they found him and how much respect they had for him, despite the fact that he'd get up on stage and he would. I mean, he'd say to Dinesh D'Souza, you know, I, I can hardly bear to look at you to say something so evil, so stupid. And, and yet people would, would come away from that thinking, wow, what a, what, a, what a great sort of eloquent, respectful man. There, there's something about the way that he, that he went about expressing his views that even if he was fundamentally at odds with your most fundamental worldview, you still couldn't quite help but like him a bit. And I think people are fascinated by him. And so, yeah, they might, even if you're somebody who really thinks it was a very stupid thing for him to do, to be in favor of, of Iraq, given his influence, given uh, how many people probably uh, were in favor of this war just because Hitchens was, 
at the same time, I think it's difficult to sort of hate him for it. Because I think people would be hard-pressed to say he wasn't sincere, hard-pressed to say he didn't make one of the best cases that could be made. And someone's got to do it, you know, in, 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 in one sense. If it is a debate that people are having, it's, um, it, it damages... In other words, it doesn't damage the fundamental aspect of his reputation, which I think is his eloquence and wit and charm and etc. That stuff isn't touched by the, the content of the opinions, really. And that's really what I think he's mostly remembered for. And so I don't think it's done that much damage at all. If we go a bit deeper into his fundamental views on, on religion then, and, and specifically on Islam and Christianity, I mean, the, the rise of, of Islamic fundamentalism with, with September the 11th and, and the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the US really from the 80s onwards, and particularly the kind of um, televangelist character, um, this undoubt- I mean, undoubtedly had a profound effect on, on, on him. And it led to, and you've mentioned already, the, you know, his most popular and most famous work, God is Not Great, um, is kind of anti-theist manifesto. Um, is it his finest piece of writing, do you think? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think it's maybe the, the most sort of, the most striking, the most jarring as a, as a reader, especially at the time when new atheism was was fresh and people were encountering these ideas for the first time uh and it's probably what he'll be most remembered for and and is what he's most remembered for now if not so much the book than the the speaking tour and the debates that went along with the book i'm not sure if he'd have quite the same historic reputation if it were just for the writing although i think it would still be you know relatively impressive a reputation i don't know if it'd be quite the same it's it's difficult to know. Uh, I'm sort of looking over at my bookshelf and, and trying to think what I would consider the 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 finest. Um, I've always had a soft spot for mortality because this is the first book I ever read of Hitchens. It's essentially how I discovered him. I remember being a young sort of teenager in a bookshop, and I'd recently gotten interested in philosophy, and I saw this book on the shelf about morality and I was like I've heard of this morality thing that's that's about philosophy isn't it so I took it off the shelf and I quickly realized that I'd misread the title it actually said mortality and it's by this Christopher Hitchens guy who I'm sure I'd heard of so I thought well I've seen my hand now I may as well buy it and I, I read it on the on the way home and this is the last book that he ever wrote a series of essays for Vanity Fair that never quite got to the size they were supposed to and it's just this sort of remarkably candid account of what it is like to die of cancer. That, that is one of those sort of life experience type books that you, you can't write unless you've done it. I think, you know, people can criticize religion and they can do it, they can do it well. And I think they can make better arguments than Hitchens made. They probably couldn't make them so eloquently. But something about mortality really struck me. And it feels very honest there are, there are sort of moments where near the end of his life, he begins to sort of let you in a little bit and the mystique starts to, starts to drop away. When he, the, the last interview he ever did with Richard Dawkins, there's a point in which he said, um, that, that is the last interview he ever did, which was conducted by Richard Dawkins with the New Statesman. There's a point in which he says, oh, Dawkins says that he's the most widely read person he's ever met. And Hitchens says something like, oh, well, you know, I read very widely, but maybe at the expense of depth. And sort of almost just admitting for a moment that, yeah, you know, he'd read all these books and he could reference all these titles, but had he really sort of 
you know, have you really taken the time to to go deep on any of them? And he seems to suggest there that he sort of hadn't. And that that kind of that kind of casual honesty comes out quite a lot in in mortality. And there's a section at the end, which is the exact opposite of what you were asking. You asked about his finest writing. This is the exact opposite. Nowhere else can you find whatever the opposite of fine is from the from the pen of Christopher Hitchens, except at the end of Mortality, which is where they've taken the notes that he'd sort of scrambled uh, together and was eventually planning to transform into further essays, but never got the chance to because he died. And they decided to publish them. And it's just... A series of, of uh, uncategorized thoughts, including things like, I think he just says the phrase, it's something like misery of watching oneself on old YouTubes or something like that, which is just sort of a, a straightforward sentence, which I, I find quite heartbreaking that the thought of him sat in a hospital bed in Houston on a laptop, sort of watching these videos of himself just conducting audiences of applause while being painfully aware of the fact that he's about to die and will never do that again. I, I find that, you know, harrowing. Um, that, so that's certainly not the finest bit of writing, but maybe it's the finest bit of reading. It's hard-hitting. Yeah, I mean, the, the Richard Dawkins interview is, is extremely difficult to watch, actually, and, and to listen to, simply because how Ill, of how ill he sounds. I've heard Will Self... Uh, say that a journalist is supposed to specifically be a non-expert on in terms of reading widely rather than deeply. Yeah, I mean, that, that is what a journalist is supposed to do. Uh, but when it comes to talking about religion or philosophy or, or even history at some points, I think sometimes Hitchens would be thought of as, as a real authority on this stuff. You, you'd think, oh, here's a man who really understands the philosophy of religion. You know, he's, he's, done, his, he's done his reading. Um, when, you know, if you ask a philosopher about what they think of Christopher Hitchens. They, they, they sort of haven't even really considered the guy because he's not a philosopher at all. He's a, he's a polemicist and a rhetorician, which, like you say, for a journalist and for a public speaker, is exactly what you want to be. That's not supposed to be an insult. Uh, but I think some people falsely assume that he had this sort of deep grasp of religious philosophy, for example, which he certainly had more than the average layman, because he spent so much time debating it and hearing the arguments. But, you know, I, 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 I don't know if he ever sort of read papers of analytic philosophy, sort of digging into the arguments that he was regularly discussing on, on, on debate forums, because when people presented them, he'd just start, you know, quoting poetry or something in response, which works, you know, it, it, it sort of, it offers a, a, a kind of response and rebuttal. But, yeah, like I say, I don't think it's like a, 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 a secret or, again, not an insult to say that he read widely at the expense of uh, reading deeply. And it's something he admitted himself. When you've got to do one. That's right. The breadth of his, of his published works is, is extraordinary. I even found a book uh, that he'd written online the other day about James Callaghan, the UK Prime Minister from the 70s, which I had no idea he'd written. I mean, I, I want to just ask more specifically about Islam. This is a podcast, as I said at the beginning, about characters who are controversial. Um, in terms of, you know, in relation to Hitchens, what do you think of the level of, of public discourse surrounding Islam and the treatment of Muslims in the West today? Because 
he had very eloquent criticisms of, of, of Islam, whether you agree with them or not. But many people might look at some of the rhetoric of people like him, especially when it comes from somebody so well-spoken, so clever, so cultured, so well-traveled. Um, and they might lay the blame for a lot of the discrimination that Muslims experience in the West at his door, because essentially he's kind of the respectable face behind actually quite an ugly form of of argument i mean i think that's a that's a characterization he himself would of course resisted and i think he would have done so on the grounds that he's criticizing what is an ideological position here uh it's a it's a set of ideological tenets and religious doctrines that are are, are quite clearly sort of well defined at least the the most fundamental aspects the um the belief in the quran is the unaltered word of god and the way that christians don't view the bible the view that Muhammad is the last and final prophet, the view that he's a figure that ought be emulated, um, these kinds of fundamental elements of, of, of Islamic belief, this is what he resisted. He saw it as totalitarian, which in a way it is. Um, you know, the, and certainly the way that uh, Islam manifests today, there's that the, the sources of uh, the sources of, sort of orthopraxy and behavior are not just limited to the Quran, but also, of course, the the uh, the, the body of Hadith literature, the 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 sayings and the behaviors of of the Prophet, and and this is almost endless. It, it's there. There are so many very specific accounts of things that the Prophet said and did, and so you have like quite specific. Instructions for those who who take the hadith literature incredibly seriously. You know, you can you can figure out which leg of your trouser you should put on first in the morning based on what the prophet did. And I think Hitchens looked at this kind of behavior, the the kind of person who follows Islam in this way, and thought it was totalitarian. It's sort of a, a set of religious doctrines trying to determine everything about the way you think and the way you behave, and that's something he didn't like. And I think fairly so. Um, the, the fact that this is sort of, you, you also have a political element of, you know, support for the Iraq war. You also have the the context of 9-11, uh, a time at which paranoia about Muslims as people was sort of skyrocketing. That when you get this quite eloquent, professional uh, criticism of, of Islam... Yeah, I can see what you're saying, that it begins to merge together a bit in people's minds, and that can be a problem, but I, I'm not sure, I mean, I don't know if I can think of anything Hitchens said that would leg- legitimize that kind of mistreatment that you're describing. It's possible that by doing what he did, he's sort of playing into a culture here, and, and potentially even sort of profiting, uh, I don't mean monetarily here, but, you know, profiting off that culture, and that, okay, I, I'm not sort of you know, antagonizing Muslims here, but people who are antagonizing Muslims are probably, you know, going to be happy to hear a criticism of Islam as a, as a, as a doctrine. But I don't think that's a good enough reason to say that he shouldn't have done it or that it was sort of wrong of him to do so. Yeah, I, I suppose what I'm getting at, and this is anecdotal, I, I know people in my personal life who would look at people like Tommy Robinson and the EDL uh, and the the polemicist who's always at the Oxford Union, despite the protests outside, uh, Katie Hopkins, um, they'd look at these people and say, 
you know, these people don't represent what I think. I, I despise them. I don't like them. But they're also quite fervently suspicious of Islam and would point to people like Christopher Hitchens, I think largely because of the way he speaks about it. Possibly. Uh, but, I mean, they're, they're sort of doing a different thing to someone like Hitchens. You know, with, with someone like Tommy Robertson, for example, it, it's, yeah, of, of course, his, his big thing is sort of being anti-Islam. But for many people, it's also being anti-Muslim. It's about immigration. It's about demographic. It's about uh, th- this kind of this kind of stuff. Which for Hitchens, it was it was more about the sort of totalitarian ideal behind the doctrine. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I don't think it's it, it, it might be fair to say that if you ask Tommy Robinson what do you think of Christopher Hitchens, he might say, yeah, fantastic, love that guy, and a big critic of Islam. But I don't think it's fair to say that someone like Tommy Robinson is the natural conclusion of reading Christopher Hitchens. I mean, many people read Christopher Hitchens and would would potentially come to the exact opposite conclusion. I mean, as many sort of people on the on the radical left could refer to many of the things that Hitchens wrote and use him that way too, in, in the way that people treat the founding fathers of the United States that we were talking about earlier, just sort of able to, to take out quotes and various views and, and paste them onto their own worldviews. That's certainly something you can do with Christopher Hitchens. Um, I, I, I can't count the amount of people I know who have been significantly influenced by Christopher Hitchens, and they're all doing completely different things, completely and utterly different things. Some are on the right, some are on the left, some are religious critics, some are journalists, some are writers, some are, you know, you could have novelists, you, or, or people who would all say, you know, Hitchens was a huge influence over who they are. Uh, I, and I, I don't think it's fair to say that any one of them are determined to be the way they are by Hitchens, just because of the fact that they like what he had to say. I want to talk about Religion in Britain today, it's the country we both live in, the country we're speaking in, the country we were brought up in. It's one of the most secular countries in the world today. Regardless of whether you think that religion is is bad for society or good for it, um, I would say that one of the criticisms that Hitchens had of religion is that many people are Christian or Muslim unwittingly. Um, you know they they don't they don't sort of seriously critique their own their own religion. I think there are probably now many people in Britain and in other countries who are atheists unwittingly. Um, you're an atheist, Alex. That's quite, that's the basis of of a lot of the the work that you do. Um, how concerned are you about the prospect of a society that is atheistic, secular, godless? but sort of unquestioning in that because there's a marriage there of, of both atheism on the one hand and conformity on the other um, and an uncritical approach to life. And, and whatever Christopher Hitchens thought about religion, he certainly hated conformity and an uncritical approach to life. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly the case that, that it, you can, you can uncritically adopt any worldview Um I mean, you ask what I think about an atheist society, but one that is so uncritically. I must say I'm suspicious of the concept of an atheist society altogether. I mean, becoming unconvinced that that God exists often lumps you in with this view of people who think religion is terrible, evil in all its forms, and should be essentially eradicated from society. And that's certainly something I was quite swept up in. I thought, yes, yeah, secularism is the is the best way to to go about it. But like you say, give it a generation and you have a secular or atheist society, 
And most people who grow up as atheists will do so sort of uncritically. Now, if you spent your life fighting against religion, if you sp spent your life thinking, I don't like this kind of dogmatism, I don't like this kind of, uh, this kind of groupthink, then once you throw off religion, it's easy enough to avoid that in other areas of your life because you've, you've trained yourself to avoid that kind of thinking or to try your best to do so anyway. But if you're uncritically thinking, if you, if, you, if you just sort of grow up as an atheist, human beings quite obviously have a predisposition towards religious thought. And if it's not going to manifest in something like traditional religion, it's going to manifest elsewhere. That is the dogmatism, that is wanting um, broad, sweeping worldviews that explain and legitimize a lot of the way that people sort of live their lives. When you see the criticism of modern political movements being a bit religious, it's something of a caricature, but you understand what they mean. It's to say that people have sort of replaced the, the, the position that religion used to hold, which is, this is what binds me together with my neighbor. This is the thing that sort of makes us all part of one community. And this is what gives us grounds to sort of... Um, to, to, to keep out other people who don't agree. This is like the, this is the sort of fundamental basis of, of our communion. That in many ways has been replaced by fundamental political beliefs. That, that seems to be the identifying feature about what's going to you know, cause a person to excommunicate uh, a member of their family or friendship group if they sort of believe the wrong thing. I, I think it's maybe a little bit cheap to say that that means that you know, these things are religions, but they certainly involve... The, the kind of, the, or they sort of take up the, the place that religion used to take. And so I think that if you eradicate religion from public life and then you allow a group of people to grow up uncritically atheist, they still have this psychological predisposition and it's going to need to be fulfilled by something. I also think that religion is never going to lose its popularity. There, there's, a, there's this sort of feeling that a lot of people have that, yeah, the world's moving towards atheism kind of maybe a bit it, it's it's hard to measure but i think it ebbs and flows because when when religion dominates you know atheism grows and then people realize that oh, without god maybe life is a bit meaningless and we don't really know what we're doing with ourselves and we don't have any ultimate purpose and they start getting a bit depressed and nihilistic and so then they start hearing oh there are other religions oh maybe islam starts sounding a bit of interest to them and, and they start sort of taking up that and then islam starts growing as it is in the united kingdom and i think it sort of goes back and forth and i i i it, religion is one of the staples of human society. Everywhere we look on planet Earth, at any human society, there's some kind of religious thought. I don't think it's going to disappear. And so, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm much more suspicious of the idea of trying to cultivate that kind of thing than I would have been sort of five years ago. In terms of the future of religion in Britain, would you say that you think Islam has a better chance of having some kind of inroad into atheistic pockets of the UK than, than Christianity does, which seems virtually dead on its feet now, although it should be said that, that Christianity has had revivals in Britain before. Yeah, and Christianity also is, is growing in popularity elsewhere in the world. In Britain, I, I certainly think that that's the, that that's the case. Britain, uh, sort of British Christianity, it just doesn't have any backbone. People don't really seem to care that much about their beliefs they're not very fervent in defending them of course there are people doing this in the uk but but as a whole the reputation of christianity is quite limp it's quite soft um you wouldn't be afraid to you know publish a cartoon in a widely syndicated magazine you know uh mocking christianity or christians e even christians themselves or jesus is the son of god but 
you know, I, I hardly need to convince you that people would be, would have second thoughts about doing the same thing for Islam. Um, and this is not something that uh, a lot of Muslims in the UK deny. They say, well, of course, yeah, because we stand up for our beliefs. If, if you're going to insult us, then we're not going to stand for it. And I think people are sometimes attracted to this. They think, yeah, why, why are we being so sort of limp and being, you know, able to be pushed around? This sort of secular notion that people should just be able to sort of completely rip apart our fundamental and most cherished beliefs and we just have to stand there and take it. No thanks, you know. There's a bit a bit more of, of, of that kind of approach. Um, Islam doesn't have the turn the other cheek. It has the, no, if you, if you, if you blaspheme, you've done something wrong, you know. Um, and I think people kind of respect that, you know. And 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 so that that might have something to do with its popularity, especially among maybe like a, you can imagine like a young person in the UK who doesn't really know what they're doing with themselves, doesn't really have a sense of meaning and purpose. They're just sort of going to school. They they don't know what job they want to do. They don't know what it's all coming to. And yeah, you've got this Christianity thing that just sort of says, "Oh, come to our church where we're going to do this like melancholy ceremony, and we're going to sort of chant." in this bizarrely depressing unison you know the creed it, it it's like no thanks that that doesn't that doesn't interest me at all but um the the islam scene in the uk you know the the debate scene the dawah scene the the community um seems much more vibrant and much more welcoming and much more uh strident and much more sort of we're going to sort of give you something that's actually going to change your life and improve it. I think that's attractive to a to a lot of young people in the UK for that reason. So I I can I can see as an atheist in the UK if if there's a religion that's going to sort of tempt you. I I, I I'm not sure, but it's quite possible that Islam would be more attractive than Christianity. Couple last questions, just to return to Hitchens. Um, I think probably the the his one of his most important legacies is is a sort of it's a technical one rather than an, an ideological one or a philosophical one which is that he was in many ways one of the first youtube political superstars so i discovered him I, and there have obviously been many of these people since youtube is strewn with hitchens's interviews and his speeches um many of his fellow travelers from when he was alive he died in 2011 Many of those people are not people who would be recognised now as being on the left. Um, Sam Harris would be an obvious example. I think most people would see him as a kind of liberal or maybe a post-liberal. Douglas Murray is certainly a conservative. He's he's on the right. I mean, if Hitchens were still alive now, how do you think he would be viewed? Um, political discourse has moved on a lot since 2011. Um, he's, as you have said he he still saw himself as a leftist at the end of his life as an admirer of Trotsky. Um, do you think others would recognise him in that way? Not that he'd care. He would he would certainly have a reputation as people would describe him as as right wing. I don't know if that's quite accurate, but you know the people the, the way that people quite lazily um, just attach that label to people. I think it would be quite easy for if Christopher Hitchens were invited to speak at the Oxford Union for there to be protests. Well, here's a man who's Islamophobic. Here's a man who sort of supported um, uh, uh, an intervention in, in Mesopotamia, the, the Iraq war. Um, the, here's a man who, you know, wrote an article that women aren't funny. 
and when challenged on the issue by a group of female comedians said that he wanted to write a follow-up called why some women apparently can't even read i think it'd be very easy to 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 produce this kind of left-wing this modern i should say modern left-wing criticism of or i guess modern liberal in, in the way that the word liberal is used in america criticism of someone like christopher hitchens it's difficult to know what he would think about the state of the world today um but i imagine you know if he had more time, he would have continued to criticize Islam. He would have continued to do so quite sort of liberally and freely and, and not mince his words. And so it's possible he could have developed a reputation for himself um, just based on that alone as someone who's like a bit of a fascist, you know. Um, I certainly think he'd be viewed on the right. But but I, I think he would always see himself as as coming from the left. But this this is also a bit of a trope now, this sort of... Well, I'm I'm actually from the left, but I believe in free speech. You know, the sort of Dave Rubin thing. I'm I'm actually uh, from a from a sort of liberal tradition, but you know, these days to be anything further right of like radical Marxist is like to be a fascist. You know, this, it's like it's, as I say, it's, it's a bit of a trope. So I, that Hitchens might have resisted that altogether as well. But there's um, there's some truth in the idea that our metrics, our goalposts, have changed. Like with someone, I mean. I'm not sure about Sam Harris, but maybe someone like uh, take take like Bill Maher. That's who I was going to say. You know, Bill Maher is your sort of typical liberal, right? Like in the sort of 80s, he's like it would be ridiculous to describe him as in any way sort of right wing or conservative or something like that. But these days, like you know, he's a bit free speech. He's sort of anti-religion, a bit anti-Islam. He's sort of it, it's again, it's the the sort of culture of who that kind of person you know, talks to and interacts with and moves with and, and the, the the perception of what kind of person they are and what kind of politics they ascribe to has just completely changed. And I think Hitchens would be part of that crowd. Well, I mean, I mean the the tripwire for many people of, of the type that you are describing and the reason that they're now viewed on the right now is, is transgender rights. And I, I, it's impossible, obviously, to imagine what Christopher Hitchens thought about that I'm not aware that he ever discussed it because it wasn't the, the issue that it is now but I can certainly imagine him taking the what, what's very often referred to as turf position or, or, or sort of LGB alliance position it, it's possible but again it's impossible to, to predict uh, I, I think it's probably the kind of issue that he wouldn't have massively concerned himself with because it doesn't really have much to do with the with the ultimate sort of thread of his political concern would have been something a bit peripheral to him in, in the way that something like abortion was. I mean, some people are surprised to find that Hitchens sometimes hints at a slightly pro-life position, if not, you know, pro-life, like more pro-life than pro-choice. You know, he refers to the the concept of, a, of an unborn baby being a real one, whatever, whatever that means. That's, that's about as vague as it gets. But he's clearly trying to hint at something like a, a sympathy for pro-life positions, which some people especially on the left, might think, wow, that's, that's huge. I mean, now this is one of the, the most defining issues of which side of the politic, uh, of which side of politics you're on, is, is what you think about abortion. But for Hitchens, it was kind of like a, something he mentioned a handful of times in passing, and um, sort of like, that, that was that. Um, and it didn't really affect his reputation, didn't really affect how people viewed him politically. Uh, and so, you know, if he did have a view on gender issues... The, of the kind that are being discussed today, I'm not sure it would have been that significant in defining his political character, unless he made a big song and dance about it. Alex, finally, um, we've discussed his his books. I, I, I'm in, I'm interested um, 
given his importance in in sort of launching that kind of YouTube political trope. What's your favourite speech or interview of his? Just as a final question. Almost certainly the Intelligence Squared debate uh, is the Catholic Church a force for good in the world with Stephen Fry and Anne Whittacombe and the Catholic bishop whose name I forget. Uh, I think that the speech that Hitchens gave at that debate uh, in Westminster is potentially the greatest speech of the past sort of 50 years in a way that I can't quite put my finger on, but I think it sums up his worldview, his eloquence, his wit as well, um, and also has the added benefit of a quite enthusiastic crowd that would regularly interrupt him with waves of applause. It really gives you the feeling of the force that Hitchens was. I think that's probably my favourite speech that he ever gave. Oh, what's, what's yours? I, I would probably say... He did an interview with Paxman just before he died, which is quite heartfelt and wide ranging. And in asking Hitchens about his illness, Paxman is unusually gentle and sensitive. It's quite a masterly piece of interviewing. I'd say I like that interview as much for the role that Paxman plays as the interviewer. Um, Alex, thank you very much. That's been really interesting. If if people want to find your work, uh, what can you direct them towards? Oh, uh, well, unfortunately, I, I started my life online as a sort of edgy teenage atheist. So my username sounds a bit like a gamer tag. It's Cosmic Skeptic, uh, which is where you can find me everywhere. But I host the Within Reason podcast, which you can find on YouTube and Spotify and Apple Podcasts and everything like that. Um, apart from that, everything is just forward slash Cosmic Skeptic. Thank you, Alex. Of course. Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, follow it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and, for good measure, leave us a review. You can also follow The Hated and the Dead on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, so you never miss new content.